Hello and welcome to Films But Time Forgot, where we look at overlooked Hollywood films from the early 80s to the early 2010s. No, to the early 2010s. I'm Adam Thornton, your host, and joining me as we look at 1994's The Shadow is my man Joel Gotteridge. Hey Adam, nice to be here with you and uh, what a good film. What a yeah. good film to do. I am oh, so boy. about it. Yeah, it is uh it is something all right. Um, but before we get into it, um, could you tell um any new listeners out there what it is you do? Yeah, so I've worked in film and television for wow, around seven years now. Um, I used to be in the camera department, I dabbled in editing for a bit, and now I work in the sort of tech side of the uh, media industry. Um, based here up in Edinburgh, just like yourself, Adam. Yeah, because I mean, because we, I mean, I mean, I've known Joel now for about coming on to just over eight years now. Because we started off actually volunteering for the film festival, and um, and and based on our previous podcast, what this guy doesn't know doesn't know about film isn't worth knowing about. Um, because you um, because you know a lot about the behind the scenes stuff. Um. Uh, about what goes into making a movie and it'll be interesting to see what you bring to today's film The Shadow which for those of you who don't know is a 1994 effects laden superhero film starring Alec Baldwin um before we get on to actually talking about The Shadow had you heard of the film before uh no not at all um like this is right up my alley of types of films I love you know they're kind of crazy um, you know, this era of like the sort of like mid to early 1990s. I love me some cheese. I love Alec Baldwin. I love Ian McKellen. I love all these really crazy people in this really crazy film. So this is right up my alley, this one. Yeah, because I mean, like you, I hadn't heard of it, which is strange because I consider myself to be pretty up to speed in 90s comic book movies, having grown up in the 90s, like The Phantom um, the Crow, even Dick Tracy, The Mask, based on a comic yeah. book. But The Shadow was something I hadn't heard of at all, not seen it in advertised um, in the video shops. Nada, zilch, zip. So when I first came across the title a couple of years back on IMDb, I'm like, wait a minute, why haven't I heard of this? Because it's not like it's an obscure film. This is like a big budget 40 million dollar blockbuster from yeah. the mid 90s starring Alec Baldwin who was you know pretty big at the time it's coming right off the heels of Batman and yet it seems to have left no cultural footprint I mean they must have been banking on his stardom though because I don't know what it, I don't know I don't know enough about his discography not his discography sorry is it his filmography to know is this this must be after like uh, the hunt for Red October, for example. Yeah, this, this, yeah, yeah. This is post Red October, post uh, Glen Gary, Glen Ross, which was a which was a critical success, and post um, the previous year he'd had a hit with Malice, starring Nicole Kidman, which is another film I'm going to be covering on the podcast. <laughs> wow, you're you're really going after um, Alec Baldwin, huh? Like in this podcast. Is yeah, that... yeah, but but not for his gun use for a change. <laughs> yeah exactly yeah fair enough he is absolutely chewing the scenery in this film and i can't wait to get into it 
Yeah, I mean, The Shadow, for those of you who don't know, is based on a radio and pulp fiction character from the 1930s. He actually started off as the narrator of a series of mystery tales, like an anthology, on the radio. Then when fans really liked the character, they asked, why doesn't he have his own show? So he then got his own show. And then he then got a magazine series based off the radio show. So it's like, unlike most other superheroes, the comic book actually was a spin-off of the radio show rather than the other way around. Yeah. And, it, and it appeared in some serials, I think, in the 1940s, but this was his first big budget, um, big screen debut. Um, this was much hyped. I think Universal were expecting this to be their next Batman, much like Touchstone Pictures expected Dick Tracy to be the next Batman. This is supposed to be the next big superhero property. It got a lot of hype, including a cancelled video game adaptation, okay. which is which is apparently leaked online. Um, but it sadly flopped. It opened the same week as The Lion King. And oh. yeah, this made $32 million on a $40 million budget, and it received overall mixed reviews um and i mean just to give a brief overall opinion i can kind of see why because it's it's not terribly cohesive no that's i think that's a, an understatement it it really is all over the place in terms of what it's trying to do but inside of that there's a lot of fun to be had um all around i reckon yeah, the, the tone is a big issue, and let's just get right into the film. And because it initially starts off promisingly, we open in what in sort of nineteen twenties Tibet, mm -hmm. um, where the opium dealing warlord Ying Ko, played by Alec Baldwin, is up in his up is up in his mountain lair, and he receives a visit from a rival who isn't happy about who's been captured, who isn't happy about Yinko controlling the drug trade, and this rival is played by... What is James, the name? James Hong. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, most famous... I mean, younger listeners will know him from Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. He's the granddad in that. But he is a, a screen legend who has been in so many great films, Chinatown... Blade Runner, Big Trouble in Little China, you name it, he's been in it. And um, and basically what Yinko does is he responds to Hong's demands um, by basically refusing to sort of give up his share of the drug trade. So James Hong takes, takes him, overpowers two of his men, takes his assistants hostage and... Um, and what and Yinko shows off his ruthlessness by getting his guards to fire through the assistant and into James Hong, killing him off. Um, this is a pretty good establishment of the heartless character of Yinko. And Alec Baldwin does a great job of sort of portraying the character's darker side, which doesn't come through enough, I find, later on in the film. I mean, I don't know what you think. Yeah, I think it's like it's it was it would have maybe tonally be nicer if we had seen more more that darkness throughout the film but like you say like at the at the beginning we're seeing him at like maybe like at the height of his ruthlessness and then we're seeing this more like 
vigilante journey from here. No, it's 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 more on the side of justice than it is on the side of like cruelty and crime, I would say. Yeah, one thing also that this reminded me of is it's very like Batman Begins, the whole opening act, because we sort of go from um, Yinko, Yinko's sort of life of crime is shattered later on that night where he's captured by a group of men who want who, who say that the Tolku, this monk, this spiritual leader, wants to see him. And he's taken to the Tolku's temple. And this oh, this whole stretch reminded me a lot of Batman Begins. Yeah. I didn't know. Yeah. I think it's this film is completely almost totally like almost plot points of Batman Begins. Towards the end it gets to Batman the Dark Knight Rises, which I think is the third one, no? Yeah. Um, with the well, we won't get into it right now. And it's also <laughs> got this weird great Gatsby like imagery all the way through. That's how I personally saw this film as a combination of those three. I mean, I'm just wondering if Christopher Nolan and David S. Goya, surely they didn't, I mean, maybe David S. Goya did, but do you think that one of these two guys maybe got some inspiration from this film? Because that would be wild if they did. Yeah, it would be wild. Um, but there's so many, uh, there are like actual, sim- like, of course, Batman Begins is after, no? Like, it's in, that's in the 2000s. Yeah. Um, but for sure, I mean, it. you could, you know, like, so many superheroes, um, you know, entities start in this sort of fashion. But the, the similarities of like going to like this sort of unnamed region of, you know, Tibet or, you know, it might be it might be a different area in Batman um, and training in these like mystical arts to become bigger than yourself and then returning to New York from where you came as this bachelor character is just shot for shot like Batman, no? Yeah, and but but you have to wonder it. Yeah, but you have to wonder is it is it that it's not specific. I think these are also quite sort of old tropes as well of the yeah. white guy learning from the Eastern <laughs> master and yeah. reforming. So I'm guessing this is more just different spins on the same old trope rather than okay. David Escoya being an ardent fan of this obscure 1994 Alec Baldwin film. Absolutely, absolutely. It is totally a trope. And it tend to they tend to also be they tend to go to like a country, you know, in Asia and then yeah. studying these these mystical arts. And they tend to be the best one. They tend to come yeah. out all being the greatest one of them. All the other, you know, Asian students tend to yeah. tend to pale in in significance to the white uh, oh yeah. <laughs> the white student. The Batman or the well, we well we do get that in a bit with uh, Mr. Yinko here, but anyway, he's taken to the Tolku's temple, and initially it's he he thinks it's just this straw hut, but then he's told to uncloud his mind, and as the mist passes, we see this impressive looking structure behind him, mm-hmm. um, really cool looking that painting by the way. It's got like this cobra head entrance, and the film. I mean, it's directed by Russell Mulcahy, who did Highlander, and that. And if you've seen that film, you know he's good at visually impressive images. And yeah, it, it, the film makes a great use of matte paintings throughout. Oh, like the when we get to the New York sections again, beautiful, you know, set pieces just all the way through the film. You're, you're so right. Um, and obviously, this foreshadows the towards the end of the yeah. film as well, which I think is quite a nice little um 
a little yeah foreshadowing foreboding of the of of one of the big plot points of the film yeah it's one of the parts of the film that's kind of narratively consistent and cohesive so you yeah. know i kind of liked that yeah, yeah. But anyway, he goes up to see the Tolku and he's taken to see the Tolku rather. And the Tolku says that he knows Yinko's real identity, um, New Yorker Lamont Cranston. <laughs> and he, and he, and he, I, and I'm, I'm just wondering how did, how did Alec Baldwin, looking like he does, pass himself off as a Yinko? Yeah, I mean, I feel like he is convincing himself and nobody else around him, right? Like, everyone knows that he's this white guy from New York, uh, but he has some weird powers, and everyone's like, yeah, okay, yeah. Because he's he's wearing, like, the full Fu Manchu gear in his, in his lair at the beginning of the film. So yeah. he clearly must be trying to convince people that he's Asian. Yeah, I think... Um, I, I'm so glad they didn't go in the direction of, like, changing his skin, because he's actually very pale and gaunt in it. Yeah, he is. Um, which is quite like he well he's in an op- basically in an opium den no at the beginning yeah he is he is yeah with all, with all the like strung out concubines around him yeah and he's like he's like henchman and stuff like this yeah yeah he does also wake up out of in bed with like four women at the beginning yeah um, yeah yeah as he's being captured yeah 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 um but yeah so also Batolku says that he knows that Lamont Lamont struggles with his dark nature and that as a result of that he knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men which is a pretty big leap but i'm going to go with that and and he says that he will teach lamont to use his darkness for good to fight evil and lamont isn't having any of this and lunges at the tolku who teleports across the room using pretty good cgi i mean the cgi in this film for 1994, we're just one year after Jurassic Park. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, for sure. Um, like the teleportation and the stuff you're going to get into in the next section. Oh yeah. I was watching it. I was like, actually, this is like obviously like there's been massive leaps in the technology. But I looked at it and I went, you know what? It's pretty enjoyable to watch. It's pretty like amazing that they this was. It seems like quite a big accomplishment for the time. Yeah, because um, the Tolku um, subdues Lamont using this floating dagger called a Perba. And the Perba actually comes to life like as a will of its own because the hilt of it, it's like this screaming demon face. And you see it, and you see close ups of it contorting and roaring. And it's got like little claws that come out of the sides when when the dagger's on the floor. And when you see it zipping around because the, Tur- the Tolku's mind controlling it, that's all CGI. For the yeah. most part, and very good, not photorealistic, obviously, but for 1994, pretty good looking CGI. Yeah, I think there's um a little disconnect editing-wise between the moments where the blade is just a prop blade and when there's heavy use of CG. So it will fly across the room and it will cut to it like being in the ground. And ah. it, there's just a, for me, there was a slow yeah. Off on the like edit, which I think is like again very telling of the time where like editors were having to sort of marry up these images. Yeah, they had this blade in the ground, and they were like, "Oh, like it has to move time and space." And a lot of credit goes to the soundtrack, I think, in this film, which is pretty good. Yeah, it's um, a yeah, it's a Jerry Goldsmith, and he does it because it's like a mixture of like 
orchestral Batman music, but also some synth stuff as well. It's it's kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So anyway, um, Lamont is subdued by the by the Tolku and and Ferber, and uh, but. We then get his training about how to cloud men's minds, but, and him returning to New York, but this all takes place off screen. We're told this by the magic of scrolling text, giving us all this information about him being trained, how to cloud men's minds, becoming the shadow and returning to New York. But it's like, could they not have shown this on screen? This would have been kind of visually interesting to show. I think there's, there's again, this film is, I think, about one hour 40. And I yeah. think it moves fairly quickly, the film. Like, it doesn't feel like that. It goes, it goes, like, it was a really entertaining watch. But when it skipped over the, like, his whole time there and just cut straight to New York, I was like, oh my God, am I, are we in trouble here? Like, in terms of, like, is this, is this going to be, like, one of those films? Um, because I couldn't believe that they skipped. That whole that whole yeah. of development, right? The whole development of him becoming a whole different person. We were getting scrolling text instead of actual, you know, on screen time. Because it's pretty crucial. Because again, his whole identity as Ying as Ying Ko is referred to later in the film. It's not like it's never mentioned again. And also, yeah. him using his powers for good, or at least for a morally light grey purpose. You know, that's a pretty big character development point and you've got to wonder again bringing up batman begins again batman begins devoted the first act to this yeah. whole development um but that was made in the mid 2000s back when you could accept films with a running time of two hours plus yeah. this is from 94 and if you look at the running times of similar superhero films aside from batman they all tend to, tended to hit the one hour 45 minute mark so I'm just wondering, did they did they cut it out beforehand or did they cut it out after shooting just so that they could hit that one hour, 45 minute runtime or I also think, reason? Yeah, I think it speaks to a point where I think like in terms of like fan culture now, we are, we want to know how where the powers came from, where the magic system lies, where this thing comes, because we want things to make sense. Whereas I feel like executives in the 1990s didn't really get that about fan culture. Mm. And they were just like, what they want to see is the guy beat up bad guys, right? That's what they want. They don't care about the development of the character. They want to see where they were and there and then that middle bit. So I wouldn't be surprised if they filmed that. And then when it came to like cut, where they were going to cut things, they were like, just take that out. They're not going to care. Well, they also take over that pitch because they take over shortcuts with this whole inner struggle with darkness throughout the film, which we'll get onto, but this is the most glaring example of, yeah, we don't want to, we just want to get to him wearing the costume. (laughs) Which is a mental costume, by the way. Yeah, oh yeah, we're going to come on to that. So away from the, after the wall of text, we cut to New York City at night. Seven years later, we're at a bridge and some mobsters are are about to dangle a scientist, uh, Dr. Roy Tam, off the off the bridge, and all of a sudden they hear disembodied laughter, and they're surprised. They're like fanning out because there's nobody there, you know who's there, and they hear this disembodied voice say that he knows that the that the leader of the mobsters murdered a cop, 
and that he's going to be brought to justice. And this opening action scene, in quotation marks, is pretty cool, as we only see brief flashes of the shadow materialising, because he's invisible almost throughout. We just see brief shots of his head moving through and brief shots of his leg as he overpowers the main gangster and dangles him sort of over a bridge. Yeah. And yeah. and this main and after the main gangster's dealt with um dealt with um the two he sort of the shadow materializes in in front of um in front of the in front of the two remaining gangsters and the outfit he's wearing he's got a trench coat fedora hat he's wielding two I think that's desert eagles are they yeah they are massive handguns whatever they are I don't know. I couldn't tell you what model they are. They're huge. Massive silver handguns, which he rarely uses, uh, I want to add, throughout the film. So they're a bit useless. Um, and also, he has a massive nose. Oh, my God. I couldn't... That, again, um, my my wife saw that and was like, oh, this is, this is a completely different actor. I went, <laughs> no, I think, I think it's him. But they just put a nose on him. Yeah, because one of the things about the shadow is he clowns people's minds to make people think that he's completely different from Lamont Cranston. And what this involves is Alec Baldwin wearing a prosthetic nose, an entire, in some cases, an entire prosthetic chin and mouth. Yeah. And in the shots where you just see the, the prosthetic nose sticking out uh, over, like, the scarf that's covering the mouth, it looks fine. But when you see him later on when he's in the back seat of his cab that he drives around in where you see the nose and the mouth it looks fucking ridiculous yeah it does it looks mad like um because because he's covering so much of his face with this like jaunty little scarf he's got going on it it does it almost makes his face look it, it makes there's more of his face to see because his nose comes out so far so yeah as a, a person of the shadows, he's actually just revealing more face. Yeah, he's revealing that he's a big-nosed guy. So, you know, yeah. any criminals would be like, hey, who's the shadow? I don't know, look out for any big-nosed guys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But Also, it's just, why? Why did they... And apparently this is how the shadow looked in the comic, and they yeah. wanted to recreate that, but it's just so distracting and unnecessary. Yeah, we, we see this all the time in films where... Um, something that was done in comic books looks absolutely mental and unflattering and not cool at all on screen. And because of fan service and because of like wanting to do pay homage to the 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 cortex, people do it, and it's a crazy decision to make. Um, because Alec Baldwin, you know, is a pretty handsome guy, and um, it just makes him look mad the whole yeah. way. It's also a weird decision that they made in this era when people weren't taking comic book movies that seriously. That was what they chose to take on board. It's just... Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, the Shadow frees Dr. Tam by using his Desert Eagle's um, guns to shoot off the cement blocks he's got to his his legs. And they catch a cab driven by Mo, who works for the Shadow. Mm -hmm. And basically... and. Tam asks the Shadow, how did he know he's going to be here? How did he know his identity? The Shadow just says, I know everything, which isn't very reassuring. <laughs> and then basically tells Dr. Tam, you work for me now. 
which yeah. isn't very reassuring again. I'm being bundled into a random taxi cab, you know, by this guy who says, right, you work for me now. And it's very convoluted how the shadow controls his agents. So he gives them like this ring to wear, oh, this yeah. ruby ring, and he gives him this rhyme to remember. <laughs> so that if, if you know, I'm going to give you this code to remember. So if somebody comes up saying something like the ice is slippery in the springtime or something, then yeah. that means that you've got to drop everything and work for me. And, if that sounds convoluted to you, it gets even worse later on. I think um, that whole, um, you know, him driving, I thought it was really funny, actually, when the car, like, because, again, I'm not familiar with the source material, but the idea of having, and again, it must be something to do with, like, the luxury of driving in a taxi in the 1940s and just having this, like, personal taxi. But the idea of the three of them confined, <laughs> into this tiny taxi cab um like they just get into the taxi and the the victim of this attack is just sitting next to the sh the the shadow you know yeah. it's, it's very like unassuming yeah it's <laughs> like, so awkward and like nobody's looking into the windows either going hey is that the shadow yeah and this guy's like i'm about a, like about a foot away from him you know it's not i could probably just punch him and try to run away if i really really wanted yeah, so after that, um, the shadow changes his appearance to normal in the cab, which is driving through a busy area to get to this nightclub. Oh, and yeah. it's like, would people not notice Lamont's, like, because he's taking off the perception filter, so people would realise that the shadow is now Lamont. Would, would nobody notice that transition? Like, hey, Lamont Cranston's in that cab. Wasn't that a guy who looked like the shadow, like, a, a minute ago? Well, this just this just speaks to the shadows income like complete power set that never is really truly yeah laid out in front of us. He can just seem to do all kinds of shadow related activities. Um, yeah, also, you know New York. You know lots of weird stuff happens in New York. Right? Yeah, but it's like it, later on in the film he becomes invisible, and it's like. Okay, I, I thought his powers were to cloud men's minds to think he was somewhere else, not invisibility, because he literally becomes invisible at one point. And I'm like, how did the Tonku teach him that? <laughs> yeah, you know, he comes invisible. Um, he is able to like, I think he's, I think he's sort of disguising the car a little bit at certain points because he just seems to be the car's just driving at speed throughout New York City, like ducking and diving out of things. And he just has this huge criminal network, essentially. Well, not criminal, but vigilante. Yeah, yeah, and it's insane how large it gets. But anyway, we he anyway, Lamont pulls up to the club where he's meant to meet his uncle, who's also the chief of police. That's <laughs> yeah. a big coincidence. And his uncle's cheering him, cheering him out for being late. And Lamont's distracted by the appearance of our female lead, um, socialite Margot Lane, played by the underrated Penelope Ann Miller. Um she was in like a handful of films during this time period. She was for love interest in Kindergarten Cop. Oh. She was for love interest in um, Carlito's Way with Al Pacino. And after this film, she kind of disappeared until like the Weinstein film The Artist came out 10 years ago. Well, you know, when you when you make something as perfect as The Shadow, sometimes you just need to take a break. Oh, yeah, absolutely. This this film and the way it handles the character in particular, perfection. 
Yes, like I, and th- I, I honestly think she does amazing. By the way, with again, with with the crazy premises that these people are having to act in, I think everyone does such a good job um, to ground it in some kind of you know, it's they're not grounding it in reality, but they're all having a lot of fun with it, and they seem to like yeah leaning into the pulp aspect of it. Yeah, and before um, Lamont finds out this mysterious woman's name, he first has to distract his uncle from launching a task force on the shadow because the uncle's fed up with the shadow interfering in police business. And the way he does this is he clowns the uncle's mind by saying, you will forget that the shadow ever exists. But the way they show this is by having a literal shadow fall over Alec Baldwin's face as he temporarily becomes the shadow and... This moment kind of works for me. I, It's cheesy, but unlike the whole face prosthetic thing, it works. I, I love these moments where the use of light completely cuts body parts out of nowhere, right? So in that moment, I think we can only see his eyes. Yeah, yeah we only see the eyes. Um, I just think it's just such a good use of camera and lighting in these. And it's it's simple and it's done so well. And there's tons of extras in the back. So you're getting loads of value out oh, of just yeah. one shot. Um, and it and it does signify like this guy's power and the sort of like noir pulp aspect of this yeah. film. Because it feels like something they would have done in the 1940s had this been made back then. Yeah, it, it felt very much like that, like a very old use, old school use of like a HMI light or something, you know, because it's very like harsh you know, powerful uh, beam of light just on his eyes, you know? Yeah, because we also get, like, I mean, the lighting in this film is great. I mean, we get really good uses of underlighting in, like, a lab scene later on in the film, an action scene set in the lab, and it looks, again, Russell Mulcahy, he's not so good in plot, but he knows how to shoot a film. It Visually, his style is on point, as the kids would say. Yeah, 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 (laughs) yeah, the kids say that a lot. Man, we're, yeah. we're too old. <laughs> uh, yes, I, I, yes. As, as, as people in our early 30s, we are too old to be using the youngster slang. Um, but anyway, um, Lamont then asks his distracted uncle who the hot lady is sitting mm-hmm. sitting behind him. And he says, um, he says she, her name is Margot Lane. And that um, and right away, apparently he drops the big fact that she's psychic. It's apparently well known that she hears voices. Yeah, that's a wild thing to just be dropping at dinner, you know, like uh, that 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 this character knows that information about her. Yeah, like it's not even a twist. Like you think most films would reserve that as a twist, but she discovers about herself or the other character or or, or Lamont would discover later on in the film. But apparently it's well known that nah, she she's psychic. Yeah. I mean, if this had been the sixth sense, we would have been hearing like, oh, by the way, he sees dead people. Yeah, it, it's like, just... He's dead the whole time. A casual revelation just thrown away like that. Oh, yeah, she she hears voices. Yeah. No biggie. <laughs> yeah, no biggie, no biggie. <laughs> so um, Lamont uh, charm, go, charms, Lamont, charms Margot and takes her out for a Chinese meal where, again, oh. her, her psychic oh. powers are... Her psychic powers are discovered when she can tell that he really likes her dress. Yeah, and I'm, I have to say, I'm going to be using this um, sweet chat-up line on my wife. Um, I really fancy some Peking duck. Oh, yeah. Um, 
it's a fantastic line. It just it just basically it perfectly capu- you know encapsulates you know I really fancy duck and I really fancy you. You know, it, it does seem it does seem kind of weird though going from a nightclub to a restaurant because yeah. wouldn't wouldn't it normally be the other way around? Um, you know, I don't often go to places and martinis appear to me. You know, so he seems yeah. to have this sort of beautiful setup at this club where he's got a table, his uncle's there at all times, uh, a martini just appears. I'm a big fan of a martini. And I also then just, I just nip out for some 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 tasty um, Pekin duck and champagne, you know? Yeah, but I'm just thinking like, Having having Chinese after drinking, surely that surely that would be repeating in Margot. I mean, it certainly would for me, is all I'm saying, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think I think maybe for you, but hey, you know, like if you can do it, you know, go for it, you know. Yeah, I, I mean I, I'm not a glamorous woman in 1930s New York, so what would I know? Oh, don't sell yourself short, Adam. I think so. Ah uh, well, one can only dream. Um <laughs> but yeah, basically Margot reveals that. She's had these psychic powers since she was a child. Um, although it's strange, though, in this scene, she acts like it's something that's happened for the first time in a while. Yeah. Yet the uncle, Lamont's uncle, seems to suggest that it's well known that she's been psychic all along. So there's a bit of inconsistency there. Yeah, yeah, I noticed that. That was a bit odd. So, yeah, so back at home, Lamont is asleep um, after the night out with Margot um, next to a roaring fire that suddenly shoots out and we see a laughing face in the fire and and he, Lamont's brandy glass shatters. When Lamont wakes up, he finds out his brandy glasses has been, is shattered, so it's not a dream, and that some, and he senses that somebody is coming. And that somebody is our main villain, Shiwan Khan, who is brought to the New York Museum in what looks like initially to be what is discovered by two curators as the silver coffin of Genghis Khan. And two things just before we get into his entrance. One is that one of the curators doesn't know what Genghis Khan's real name, um, Temujin, is. He has to be told that by the other curator. And second of all, they find out it's Genghis Khan's coffin because there's an inscription on the coffin in Latin but wouldn't it be in Mongo? Wouldn't it be in like Tibetan or Mongolian? Because it's yeah. from Tibet. Yeah, and I, you know, excuse my ignorance as well on the matter because I'm, I'm not, I'm not. My history is not amazing. But wouldn't Latin have been invented like decades, if not centuries, after? Well, certain, well, cer- well, certainly in the other side of the world. I mean, and I don't think Genghis Khan's empire stretched stretched to like ancient Rome. Yeah, I, I would have to. I, 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 would, I do not know the history on it, but I did think it was strange that it was in Latin. Again, there's just a whole mix of like cultures and just things just thrown in. I feel like in this. I, and and I know people will say we're nitpicking, but come on, it's a glaring error. I mean, I mean. At least make it like made up Chinese or something, you know. Yeah. Make it far easterny. You well, know, they have a lot of they have a lot of you know a, the whole first like little chapter is all set in Tibet, and he you know references Asia a lot, and then just for this you know for this little moment to be like oh it's in Latin is is just it just stands out. I feel like yeah, I, I feel like. 
I feel like today you would have lots of people being angry on the internet about it. Yeah, probably, probably. I think they got away with it in 1994. Oh, yeah. So the curators go off to make a phone call about their discovery, leaving the one hapless security guard there with the giant silver coffin, which they don't know about. And the coffin opens to reveal Shuan Khan, played by John Lone, who is most famous for appearing as the titular last emperor in the Oscar-winning film. But for anybody who's a Jackie Chan fan, he um, plays the villain uh, in Rush Hour 2. Uh, what? Both of those? I, I, I'm a fan of both of those pieces, and that makes a lot of sense. He, again, I really like this 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 actor in this film. He's great. He's, he also voiced the villain, I think, in um, Mulan. And oh, he's... Okay. He's really good at that kind of Asian villain character. I mean, he's just, he's got this very mesmerizing, piercing stare, which makes the scenes where he's controlling people's minds. Yeah. And really, really chilling in a way yeah. which doesn't, the rest of the film doesn't come off of that like that at all. Yeah. And yeah, I, I agree. And I think he has good like physicality as well. Like he's sort of, he's quite a small, slight guy. Like he's got yeah. that, like agile frame. But I don't know, the way he carries himself is very full of confidence and he looks muscular and strong and dominating. He's a, I thought he was great in this. Yeah, so what happens is, is that he, um, Shiman Khan, the last descendant of Genghis Khan, living descendant, um, controls the guard and makes him shoot himself. And again, this is a really... The, stuff, the early stuff with Khan is pretty dark. Surprisingly dark, even even for this film. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. it's another example of where the tones kind of clash, because this yeah. uh, he's a great character, and you almost wish like and these are great moments, and you almost wish the rest of the film was like that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think like he does this. He has a very good opening, and then I I do feel like the way the character is written gets a little bit more silly. As the yeah. go, right? It start and again, that's the same for Alec Baldwin's character in a mm. way. He starts off quite mysterious, quite dark, quite troubled, and then as you learn more, you kind of just see him as this sort of almost vapid character. Yeah, and it's a shame because it's kind of wasting the potential that the film has. Like the whole dynamic between Card and Cranston is so interesting, but yeah. we see like so little of the darkness throughout the film of the dramatic potential. And it's like, it just feels like one big missed opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just, again, it's just a misreading of source material. And it's also just, I think it's just of this era, people didn't take pulp comic book stuff. Yeah. Easily enough when they were making adaptations of it. So after the death of, this, of the poor security guard, we go to a US federal building where Dr. Reinhardt Lane played by Sir Ian McKellen, uh, pre-Gandalf, pre-Magneto, pre-Fame. Um, he's arguing with another scientist, played by the legend that is Tim Curry, Farley Claymore, about Claymore using his experiment, this beryllium sphere, for the military, whereas Dr Lane isn't. And this is weird because we later find out, spoiler, spoiler alert for later on, that Dr Lane is effectively working on the atom bomb. Yeah, yeah, in his apartment, where it seems, right? In the middle of New York City, in a pretty nice little penthouse. He's just got this 
very top secret government project working, um, which I think again is so funny and so um, cheesy. And but funny. how was he hoping to use it for altruistic means? Because that's what comes up later <laughs> on in the film. It's like, how how was he going to use the atom bomb for like to help people? Is it not the War Department as well? It's, it's literally called the War Department. Yeah, I, I think it's supposed to be that like he's a bit ditzy, he's a bumbling scientist, but then it, Margot also says the same thing. And I don't know, she's generally throughout the film not meant to come across as ditzy. Yeah, I think he is He is very meant, meant to be like this, like uh, detached from the real world, right? He's very focused on his work and everything like that. To a point where the character's almost, I would say, almost a write-off, where you can't really ever take Ian McKellen's character too seriously because he's always doing the same thing. Yeah, it's yeah, he, the character's a bit kind of one note. And you can say that about a lot of the supporting characters, even I mean, to an extent, I mean, Tim Curry's character kind of isn't, but it's still very two-dimensional. And you could argue, well, that's the point, but it would be nice to have just a bit more given to the character of the Doctor, just to give Ian McCallan a bit more to do, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think he was a bit wasted in the film, because uh, now we know him as this fantastic, you know, yeah. actor. I thought his accent was a little ropey. Yeah, it's a lot like his Magneto accents in the first X-Men film where, like, he's American every other line. Yeah, yeah. It was, it, and it's distracting, no? Like, yeah. I hate saying this about Ian McKellen because I love Ian McKellen, but I would say in this film, he stands out at being, not hitting that accent <clears> too well and maybe playing the character a little too, um, maybe a little too dumb. You yeah, know? but but then and again, I mean, so does Tim Curry. I mean, Tim yeah. Curry's accents all over the place, and he's yeah, he's fun to watch. Oh, he's fun to watch in this film for sure. He is again chomping yeah. at the scenes, right? Oh yeah, because the scene right after he's arguing with the doctor, he's sexually harassing Margot, who's yeah. coming to see the doctor, who's her dad, yeah. and he's he's just great at convincing the audience that Farley wants to get into Margot's pants. Well, he is like the classic, like if you think of The Mummy or you think of any of these type of action films, there's always this one like slimy character. It's like the Benji. I think it was Benji. Yeah, yeah, Benji, yeah. There's a slimy character who will always side with the (laughs) supernatural force that is the enemy um, for their own gain. And then that's ultimately their, their downfall. And he plays that. He just plays that right. He plays that so well. He's slimy, he's kind of, you know, he's kind of this fluid character who you just want to hate the whole time. Yeah. So Margot um, meets up with her dad, who, um, and we get this bit of foreshadowing where he we find out he's red and green colourblind because oh, he gets the colours mixed up. And that pay that pays off in the end at like in like the most Oh, I don't want to say ludicrous way, but it's the end. It comes at the end of an action sequence, which I think is the worst one in the film. Oh yeah, hands down. And oh the- yeah, let let let's let's save that to the end because boy. Yeah. Um, but the yeah, colorblind. The setup of the colorblind thing was just gimmicky and not worth it in the end. And she basically she basically is visiting her dad. To get a sound, to basically to 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 sound, to a sounding board 
as she talks about how her telepathy is connecting her to Lamont and how she's falling in love with him and her dad's not really interested. It's kind of a weird way to express that Margot's in love with Lamont. They could have shown that more subtly. Um, they didn't, the scenes felt a bit redundant to me. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it was just really to show us what he's doing because he's going to be coming in the plot. And it was just a really convenient scene, right? Like it doesn't really give yeah. us anything emotionally for either character. But and also, and also Margot does kind of end up in parts becoming a bit of a drippy love interest. I mean, she's more proactive, but you do get some moments like that where the dialogue is just her pining after Lamont and it's yeah. a bit samey. Yes. Oh, for sure. I, I think they could have, again, given her more. Um, but again, she does great work with what she's given, I think. Oh, yeah. I mean, Penelope Ann Miller is very good at p- playing that sort of 1930s romantic interest. Yeah, for sure. Now we go back to our main man card as he ba- as he forces a cab driver um driving him to to kill himself by driving straight in straight into a gas tanker that blows up right in front of everyone. That is a huge explosion. Again, yeah, not the- very conspicuous. No, not conspicuous at all, right next to, you know, not to spoil anything, but a very important plot point. Oh but, yes, but also just this fact that um, um, this film goes from these weird set pieces that are like inside us, you know, inside his lab to these giant explosions, and then again, again, just cuts somewhere somewhere else afterwards. There's no like build up of action, and it's, then like a nice very, yeah, and like yeah, it's very stop start. It reminded me a lot of. Tim Burton's Batman kind of has that though as well. Like yeah. you'll cut from the Joker doing something to Bruce Wayne and or, or to Kim Basinger, and then you'll cut to Batman. It, it is a bit sort of stop starty in that same way. Very of the era, I think. Yeah, I, I think maybe they hadn't quite learned how to pace comic book books yet. Yeah, yeah. It was it must have been it must have been tricky for for that. I think comic books do translate the translation is quite difficult you know because there's so much in that blank space between frames yeah absolutely but as you said the cab does stop off um next to an important piece of fenced off wasteland which as you said is going to figure in very later on in another ludicrous plot twist (laughs) yeah um so anyway back to the museum where 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 the the guard's body's been been found there's a crime scene and a cop who happens to be working for for Cranston, and this is a long ass sequence. He um, he leaves the crime scene and goes to this anonymous office in the middle of town, where he where he writes a message on a piece of paper, pushes it through the letterbox of the office. The message then goes through this whole network of pipelines, um, snaking throughout the city, and this must have been. I don't know if this is CGI or miniature work where we see the external shots of like this message going all through the pipes um, and we get POV shots of the message traveling through these pipes, but it's amazing. And it ends up coming out of this like exchange building. It's like an old fashioned telephone exchange, but it's got loads of different tubes coming out of uh, onto this one desk. And the guy and the guy at the end sort of picks up um picks up the 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 message out of the tube, 
reads it and then pushes a button. But bear with me, I'm getting to the end of this sequence, but makes Alec Baldwin's ring glow red. Um, he then presumably calls for Mo, who's driving a cab. He's he's driving other people to their destination. He just drops them off in the middle of nowhere and then speeds off to pick up Lamont. And then we cut to the taxi cab driving to this random alleyway in the middle of town. Lamont then gets out of the car, goes to this random alleyway, pushes down onto a sewer grate, which opens up to reveal um, Lamont Cranston's version of the Batcave, um, which he calls the Sanctum. He then goes to the front desk, presses a button and gets a message from the guy, old guy running the tube exchange thing about the murder that's happening. And he says, you need to get down there. Blimey, that was a scene. <laughs> it's a mad scene. It's a mad scene. and. Again, going back a little bit to where they were in the cab with uh, the shadow uh, in the, at the beginning, and he hands in this ring, and when it glue, when it glue, when it when it when it started glowing, I couldn't believe it because I was like, "Can you imagine turning up to a fa- your family and you had yeah. this ring on, this giant red ruby, and then just catching it one day glowing and being like, where did you get that ring from? That's a mental <laughs> object to own.'" And yeah, and you have to say, oh, it's oh, it's nothing. It's just it's just for shadow, just important secret agent stuff. Yeah, but yeah. You'd, you'd have to make up some very elaborate lie. I like I won it at the fairground or something. You know. I like, mean, I, I mean, once again, the visual effects are great. I don't know if they're CGI or miniature or what, but it's so convoluted. Like, could yeah. they not just use a form of the bat signal? But the thing about the bat signal is, it's quick and efficient. You know, Commissioner yeah. Gordon sets off the bat, the bat signal. Batman sees it in the sky, knows where the knows knows this crime going on. Yeah, well, you know what? Ultimately, the shadow should just hang up all of this weird shadow powers he has. His real power is managing a team. He has so many agents doing so many things all at once. He is affecting real change by just managing this team. But what happens if, like, the tube guy goes off sick and there's nobody to get the message? What happens then? Oh, I I just figured no one ever gets sick under his watch because they're too terrified of him. Right, so even if they're, like, dying of TB, which would yeah. have been around in those days, just, he's just got to sit at that desk coughing up blood, waiting oh, waiting for a message to come through for the shadow. <laughs> yeah, pr- pretty much, that's my guess. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe he has a great healthcare plan, but my guess would be no. So after after receiving the message, Lamont spins around to find Shiwan Khan. Um, and it's surprising, by the way, how often these two meet up face to face. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, and like even though there are attempts in each other's lives, it doesn't feel like enough. Like I kind of feel like as soon as Lamont sees him the second time around, he should just be, like, coming at Shiwan Khan with all his shadow powers, like, right away. Yeah, they are chatty. They're quite, like, flirty with each other. You know, they're kind of, like, dancing. Oh, yeah. Topic of being, like, oh, you know, I knew you back in the day and stuff like this. Oh, yeah, because it's, like, they basically sit down in Lamont's Cranston's easy chair in his lair, help themselves to brandy, and casually chat about the good old days in Tibet. 
Yeah, yeah, they're having a great time. And, you know, like, um, it's there's a lot of, like, there's a lot of, like, complimenting each other and then immediately oh, saying there's... something negative. Oh, yeah, but there's this cringy um, bit of dialogue where Shiran Khan sort of compliments Lamont on his tie and Lamont says, you know, he says, oh, where'd you get that tie from? And Lamont says, oh, um, Brooks Brothers. Oh, God. With a sale on. And it's just, oh. why is this piece of product placement... Apparently, this is supposed to reference the product placement that was in the Shadow Radio series, but it does not belong in this film. No, and it just... it. You could have placed that anywhere else, you know. They could have had that moment be like, you know, if she's she swoons over him a lot. Yeah, it should it should be it should be between him and Margot. Yeah, it's just again like it's they have they have they have good chemistry him and um. They do because I mean, although we're saying they're friendly, there is a dark undercurrent to this whole conversation because Khan's saying, "I know your real identity of Yinko. I have admired, studied, and admired you for years. I want you to join me by my side as I plan to finish off my ancestor's job by taking over the whole world, starting with New York." And it's all very kind of tense, although they're being civil you know, on the surface. But then this random piece of product placement comes in the middle and you're like, you know, Tone, hello, guys, you know, read the room regarding Tone. They also, I love the bit where it culminates. And again, it's very sloppy in terms of dialogue a little bit. But he sort of, again, he's in his house, I believe, and he pushes a button and there's there's like a gun pops out from a pillar. Yeah. Flicks a coin at him. Yeah. It's like... Who is this guy's contractor who can just build him a sanctum in the middle of New York City? I know, because it's not like the Tim Burton Gotham City where you sort of accept that, oh, it's not based in the real world. This seems to be based in real in the real world of 1930s New York. Yeah, there isn't like super villains running around or anything. It seems very like everything else seems grounded except from him. Yeah. It's so yeah, so um so Lamont, um, so Lamont sort of refuses to join Khan in his plan of conquering the world. Um, he he correctly identifies him as being behind the museum murder. Um, Khan says he's going to do it in three days, which should be sending Lamont. <laughs> Lamont Lamont should be panicking. Yet he's really doesn't seem to be all that all that fussed. Um, and yeah. So anyway, yeah, he thinks that Shiran Khan's drawing a weapon to fire at him, but it's actually an ancient Chinese coin to pay him for for, for the drink. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And there is no reason for the Khan to give him this coin, except that in the plot, it helps yeah. him find the metal. Yeah, it, help, it helps him basically figure out what his plan is. Yeah, um, yeah. And then straight after this scene, we get another scene with Khan, which is the polar opposite to this scene. It's got this great overhead shot where we've got Khan wearing this robe that's blending into the carpet, and we see him almost rise up from the carpet. It's very atmospheric, and he's in this, like, penthouse, what looks like at first to be a penthouse apartment lair, and he's saying, you know, the Mongol race will conquer the world in three days, and... We then see all his guards, his Mongolian guards around him whirling their swords. It's very atmospheric. It's a yeah. complete contrast to the yeah. casual fireside chat he had beforehand with, with Cranston. And I kind of feel like these two scenes should have been switched. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I think that scene was beautiful when he when the ca- the camera pans down and it, and it looks... Oh, yeah. 
becomes like it comes this 2D image becomes this 3D image of him uh wearing this amazing robe that mirrors the the car the the sort of oh yeah tiles or carpet that are down um it's yeah and then it's crazy how many like he's got all these these guards in like traditional I guess Mongolian armor yeah. which uh, they wear all the time by the way they never take <laughs> yeah. it off no they never take it off and to blend into 1920s New York. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, there's a scene coming up later on where we've got a Mongolian guard wandering around Chinatown looking completely out of place and nobody pays him any any attention. No, again, it's New York. Weird, weird stuff happens in New York, apparently. So, so we then cut to Dr. Roy Tam's house where he's contacted once again by... Now, he's not contacted by the Shadow. He's contacted by Lamont Cranston, which is another point which runs throughout the film. We see more of Lamont than we do the actual shadow. Oh, 100%. Like, the shadow is... He's in, like, four, he's in like four scenes tops wearing yeah. the outfit. And I would say he fails in most of those scenes. Like as, Yeah, it's he's very... Combat, he pretty much fails. But uh, as Cranston... As, is it Cranston? He, he seems to be fairly successful in most of his doings. Yeah, most most of his stuff is as Lamont Cranston, so you have to wonder why the secret identity. It, it makes the whole superhero aspect a little superfluous. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> so anyway, um, Lamont contacts Dr. Tam as he wants to know about the coin that Shuan gave him. So at Dr. Tam's lab, it turns out that the coin is made from bronzium, and Lamont immediately assumes that... Shiwan Khan is going to use this same type of metal to make a bomb out of to destroy New York, which is quite a leap. Very much so. Yeah, it's like me giving you a 50 pence coin and being like, wow, okay, well, he's got an abundance of this metal that he's going to use for evil purposes. Yeah, and he's sort of wondering aloud who would make a and make a bomb. And it turns out that and it cuts to Dr. Lane making the bomb. <laughs> and he also notes that they need a beryllium sphere in order to house the bomb, which, again, yeah. we're talking about beryllium spheres beforehand. It'll come into play. You're going to hear the, the phrase beryllium sphere said quite a few times. Oh, they love beryllium spheres. Oh, yeah. Fuck yeah. yeah. Fuck yeah, beryllium sphere. Um, <laughs> yeah. I never thought I'd be saying that. I never thought I'd be writing that phrase down so many times in my notes. Oh, I say that to myself all the time, Adam, all the time. So anyway, to Dr. Lane's lab where he's working in the bomb. Now, Shiran Khan controls his mind from a distance. Now, the effects used for this, initially, I liked it because we get Khan controlling him remotely from his lair where we see this rug pattern on front of him become come to life almost and come out of the rug and that's that's cgi obviously but it's a very good use of cgi yeah definitely. what what isn't good cgi is we hear sort of um um dr lane hears shiran khan's voice saying you know reinhardt lane i am i am controlling you now and he goes to this outside on on this rooftop and he sees this cigarette advert and they show the cigarette advert turn into john lone's face using like it's like watercolor animation yeah. and it's like you see the mouth moving at the animatronic thing thing and it's john lone's voice coming up saying reinhardt lane and it looks so cheesy and awful 
Yeah, it's a moment of just it's it's an unnecessary moment, I think, and a poor one of the one of the few actually poor uses yeah. in the film. Yeah, and it's like it sums up the film as a whole. You'll get this one really stunning, powerful moment, and then it'll be followed up by something that just fails. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Agreed. Um so back to the club, and Uncle Wainwright is once again lecturing Lamont about his lateness. Um Margot then enters and starts yelling at Uncle Wainwright, asking, um, yeah, 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 that's the uncle's name, by the way, if I haven't mentioned. Very important facts. Um, Margot then demands to know why her dad isn't talking to her. And he and she mentions that he started speaking Chinese to her, which leads to Lamont quickly leaving the club. Unfortunately, Margot follows, follows after him and and discovers that his name is Ying Ko, his true, his true identity of Ying Ko. Yeah. Um, Lamont tries to use the um, his mind control powers to, to wipe Margot's memory, but it fails. And I like how when it fails, we get the sounds of the shadows theme slowing down like a record, like... Yeah, that was cool. Again, the soundtrack working at, at all levels in this film. <clears throat> so at the Federal Building... Dr. Lane is packing is packing the bomb away um, with the help of the henchman um, who's killed two guards outside his office who have this random conversation about what food they're going to have afterwards. That was one of the few bits of comedy that I felt worked. Yes, they, they um, put comedy in this film in the weirdest places and I would say 70% of it doesn't land. Yeah, this this time it does land because it's a nice build up to the like to to the guards outside the lab getting killed. Yeah, again, again, it's just this very mundane moment that is um, brought to life with a bit of comedy, I think. And you're right; I think this is one of these situations where I was like, kind of laughed, laughed to myself out loud um, because I was really enjoying the film at this stage. I was like, I lo- I was loving the campy aspects and everything. So yeah. <laughs> So anyway, so the henchman hears a noise, goes outside and gets ambushed by the shadow. First time in a long while we've seen him. And a lot of this fight scene, it's not too bad, but it's very similar to the fight scene at the beginning of the film. A lot of the shadow's fight scenes are basically, he's invisible. So it's occasionally, so you basically see shots of the actors throwing, playing the henchman, throwing themselves around with accompanied by occasional shots of a partially visible Alec Baldwin from the shoulders up. And you occasionally see shots, shots of him, shots of like his legs or his hands holding the, cri- the criminals up. But they're very repetitive. And I'm wondering if they overused the invisibility thing so that Alec Baldwin didn't have to do any of his own fighting. Yeah, maybe. I think, again, it just... it. It maybe is um maybe why this character isn't like more widely known. It's just poor design, right? You have a shadow character, and then he has two massive rock handguns. But you'd think he might have a dart gun or like uh, yeah. a, a knife or something like this. Instead, he spends it's it's kind of repetitive and boring to watch these fists come out of nowhere, hit some guards, then the guards you know throw him around a bit. Um, and at no point, only when he's visible, does he ever bring out the guns. So that Alec Baldwin can get that moment where he looks cool and brings out these two massive pistols. 
Yeah, I mean, you'd but you'd think that they'd at least show him fighting, but they actually don't. A lot of the time, he's invisible, so stunt stunt performers throwing themselves around, and then only for the shadow to appear right at the end. Yeah, you might be right there. There may be something to do with Alec Baldwin not wanting to, or them not wanting to shoot Alec Baldwin fighting. Yeah, or him just not being bothered because we don't really see if he's in shape or not. As well, it's kind of like it's kind of like Michael Keaton because we don't really see. It's kind of like Michael Keaton as Batman, where we don't really see him shirtless. Yeah, I think you see him. I think you see Alec Baldwin. He looks. He looks like he's in good shape. I think in this. Yeah. Like, um, but he. But yeah. Just, but again, it's just the character. I think there's a the character just doesn't make cohesive sense. You know. Yeah. Not have a a blade of some kind, or you know, he's yeah. throwing a lot of punches around a lot and laughing. He loves yeah. to let people know he's around. Yeah, as, as soon as he, yeah, as soon as they've kind of he's dealt with this other henchman, and the other henchmen come in entering the lab, you hear once again the laughter, and it's like that's something. I guess it's something you'd associate more with a supervillain, yeah. and I guess it's maybe meant to reference his like a morally ambiguous nature, but it gets annoying after the after the second time. Yeah, and again, it's just the whole idea of being in the shadows. Is that you're not seen? Yeah. Right? So yes, it's intimidating, but isn't there more value in getting the surprise and the jump on a on an enemy more than just going? Ha, 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 ha. You yeah. Well, well, that, a ridiculous setup. Well, that backfires later on in the the Tim Curry scene that we're coming up to. But after, but in between the sort of non-fight scene, fight scene, we do get a cool moment where one of the henchmen shoots the shadow, the animated shadow, with a crossbow. Yeah. And we kind of see the shadow materialise sort of out of it, out of the shadow. That was a cool moment of, I guess, using animation and live action. Yeah, awesome. That was kind of cool. But um, yeah, other than that, the fight scene's not much to write home about. We do get a nice moment, though, where he's dangling the final henchman off a roof and the henchman chooses to fall to his death and he falls down right next to Moe's cab. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And he's reading about learning about psyche being psychic. I thought that was a a nice touch. Yeah, that was a nice touch, and I, I think that was maybe again a a, a try at humor, where yeah, I mean this Mo guy's like, oh, I better get my taxi because this guy's falling off the roof. Um, I liked some of it, but I didn't think it landed. The comedy landed of it so much. Yeah, I think this one, I mean, I kind of liked it. I thought it was it was okay, better than some of the other attempts at humour. Yeah, yeah. So we then go to Margot, who's phoned by her dad, who asks her to come to the lab. And, and once she's there, she's mind-controlled once again by, by Khan. We don't get to see the goofy animation effect this time, but we cut to her instead. And it's a really nice transition because we cut to her in the penthouse lair. And it's a circling shot around her, as she's given a gun and told to kill, um, to kill, uh, to kill the shadow. Yeah. And again, great use of cinematography by Mulcahy. I'm not going to repeat what I've already said, but we go then back to Lamont's mansion, where he's patching up his wounds and confronted by Margot and. She's an awful shot because she shoots right away at a mirror instead of Cranston, not even aiming remotely at him. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and again, he's, she's given a weapon that has one bullet in it. 
So yeah. I think she's very much geared up to fail in the scene, which is it's, kind of the point. Yeah, yeah, which yeah, which you find out later on is the point. But um and it, but Lamont snaps her out of her trance, demands to know who sent her, and Margot puts two and two together and realizes that Lamont Cranston is the shadow. And we get a nice sort of creepy moment where Lamont kind of semi turns into the shadow, his eyes turn sort of black and he speaks in the shadow's voice. And that's very, to Margot, and that's very creepy. Yeah, and it would yeah. be, I kind of feel like they should have gone with that approach for the shadow instead of the whole prosthetic stuff. For sure, for sure. The prosthetic stuff is totally not worth it. And um, and and Margot Margot goes and Margot isn't afraid of shadow and so, and asks him to find her her dad and he says yes because he knows that Margot won't tell won't tell anyone about his identity his identity. So we then go to um, now I keep I want to say the shadow but it's not the shadow it's Lamont. Fucking Cranston, he's hardly ever the shadow in this film. Um, <laughs> it's just, oh God, I've never seen a superhero be his, be his secret identity so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, he he appears to be going to the, to the sanctum, um, followed, tailed by this henchman. But at the last minute, he kind of gives the henchman the slip by literally disappearing into the shadows of an alleyway. We see the character literally dematerialize. Yeah. Um, uh, so is the shadow able to make himself disappear? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Again. Again, we don't see that power very often in the film. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of set up by the Tolkien teleporting, but you know, would it be nice to have seen him learn this? But it were again, again, the, the henchman wearing full Mongolian armor on the yeah. of New York, and he's and he seems to be surprised that somehow. He's been, you know, discovered and this followed. Slipped, yeah, slipped yeah, away. You know? Yeah, because but yeah, because but he follows the henchman into a Chinatown restaurant. The henchman's standing out like a sore thumb. Um, <laughs> Shivan Khan didn't teach his henchman the importance of, of disguise. He discovers <laughs> yeah. Khan again, uh, gobbling away at some chicken. And again, if I was Cranston, I would just put a bullet into Khan's head as soon as he walks in. Yeah. Because he yeah. knows it's Khan sitting there. He knows what Khan's got planned. Just just pump two in his head and just go out. Yeah, it's got that sort of like Bond style, like, oh, you know, yeah. Bond, let's chat. And, you know, here's my plan, but you can't stop the plan. And this, and well, like, take a gun out and shoot the guy, my guy. Like, you well, can't stop him right now. Well, it's basically what happens in the conversation because Shuan Khan says, I don't, you know, um, Shuan's. Shaman asks if Margot's dead. Um, Bichat, um, Blamont says no. He knew, you know, he knew that Khan sent sent the girl to kill him, and and a base and 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 um, Lamont says that he knows, but without the beryllium sphere, second time mentioning, Khan can't make his bomb. And Khan says, and Khan then tries to stab Lamont with Ferber. We got uh, we got a little Ferber returning. It turns out that. Khan used it to kill the Tolku. Yeah. And any any scene with Ferber is cool. Um, the only good action sequences are the ones involving Ferber. Yeah. But yeah. No, it's not, it's not Ferber, it's Purba, sorry. Purba. Oh, yeah, that's right, that's right, that's it. And um and 
And yeah. uh, so what happens is it's a bit of a shadow then tries to stab stab Khan with Perba, but isn't able to control it. And it's threatened at gunpoint by the henchman. Um, Khan instead asks um, Lamont to join him again. Lamont refuses. Mind controls the henchman to pass uh, Lamont the gun. <laughs> Khan immediately stabs the henchman and <laughs> then jumps out the window. Um, Lamont then sort of pursues him in Moe's cab. Um, yep. Khan's henchmen are pretty much useless. I mean, it's so funny how the henchman is so easily mind controlled and how Khan just quickly kills him. It's like. <laughs> yeah. And um, I love so much the getaway vehicle that this powerful Khan. Oh, yeah. It's a, mo it's a motorbike. Car. Yeah, but it, he's not even on the motorbike, he's in the sidecar. Yeah, with like completely open air. Anybody can shoot him. Yeah. And it's like the res the resources of this Khan are always like you know in Batman Begins where Ra's al Ghul appears and he has like he has all these ninjas around him and he brings this like he's very like elusive. Yeah, this guy we're gonna find out has tons of resources and seems to have been planning this for years. And I think he's brought up to ten useless yeah. henchmen with him. He's he's um, he's, like, he, he's like really skimping on some parts of his plan there. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like he's hit a budget. And he's yeah. like over budget on like certain aspects of this. And he's like, I can't go over budget on henchmen. So I'm just the, taking Tim, Brian, and all these yeah. just, these terrible hench people. I mean, I'm guessing the market fell out of the opium market at the opium um, dealing. Yeah. The whole yeah. the whole warlord market. I'm guessing I mean I'm I'm guessing um the I'm guessing the market just fell out of that. So he just thought, right, gotta cut down somewhere. Yeah, I think he made some bad investments, you know, in the 1920s, you know. So it, it happens to everyone, right? Ups and downs. So what happens is, is that um is that is that Shiwan is pursued to this um is pursued by well, well, is pursued by this by by Lamont and the card and his card and 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 Shiwan disappears and is nowhere to be found other the only but the one thing that catches Lamont's attention is the random fenced-off patch of wasteland next to where Shuan disappeared. Yeah. So, so then later on at home, Lamont enters to find Margot still here. Um, he says that she can still that she can stay the night, and then has this weird dream, which I really like. He wakes up. And he goes to Margot's bed, but then starts to tear away at his face. And the effects they use is like the effects of, you know, in Poltergeist? Yeah. When the guy's pulling away at his face? Yeah. It's the same effect here. We get Lamont ripping and tearing away at his face to reveal that, under, that, he, that underneath is Shuan Khan. Yeah. I think it must have been a prosthetic mask, mask effect they used. Yeah. And he then wakes up with the start. And obviously, this is meant to symbolise that he is just as dark as Khan and that yeah. Khan's words are having an effect on him and that he's still grappling with the darkness within. Yeah. I think, um, like, that moment of body horror is so good. And again, it just goes to the point of, like, there's so many good moments in this. And <laughs> that, like, body horror, peeling where your face, it was awesome. I just lacked a bit of substance for me. Like, it was like, it didn't have the tone. It just tonally, it felt off. I yeah. Love and yeah. I also, I also love the trope of when somebody's had a nightmare, just waking up drenched in sweat. Like yeah. he wakes up and he is, he looks like he's just come out of the shower. And what, I, I'm so here, I'm so here for that. 
But, but, but to be there though, I would be too after that dream. So he goes to to he goes he goes up and he goes to Margot's bedroom where, and again, this is where the whole point of Lamont's dark side is undermined. So he asks her about her dream, and she gives him this long, the sexy dream she had about lying on a beach, completely naked. And he then says, oh, I had a dream where I ripped off my face and found out I was somebody else. And she says, wow, you've got problems. And he goes, yup, I know. And that's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember that bit. Yeah. All the darkness is completely wasted on these throwaway one-liners. And it's like we barely get any insight into the shadow grappling with this darkness. Like, I'm not saying this has to be Batman Begins, but come on, if you're introducing these themes of somebody grappling with their own dark nature, you need to in investigate these a little more. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think it's, just, again, it's just it just goes back to, like, the miss, the, under, the, the, the lack of understanding that I think some directors of the time had on on this kind of film where they were like, oh, people don't care about the the, the substance of it. Um, where actually it would be much more interesting if he was, uh, we were seeing a real effect on what the Khan's appearance was on him. But anyway, instead we're going for romantic banter as, <laughs> um, as, uh, as, as, as Lamont has to try and cover for the fact that he has many girlfriends and mistresses. Yeah. And... He, uh, as he's telling her to pick out clothes, it turns out to all be basically his ex, his ex's clothes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Margot then says that she's joining um, Lamont and his investigation into her dad's disappearance, whether he likes it or not. And it's all played very bantery, very lightly. And both Baldwin and Penelope Ann Miller do a great job of the scene, but it just totally doesn't fit in at all with what came beforehand. Yeah, their whole banter relationship, um, it goes, it just keeps building from here. And that would have been fine if that's what the character was like earlier on. But like you say, it feels like a real departure from the really broody character that was we were getting before. Well, we also do get some darker moments with them later on. So it's unclear where, where, where they wanted the relationship to go. Did they want it to be like a, a 1940s banter thing or did they want it to be more like... Um, the relationship between Michael Keaton and Kim Basinger in Batman. Mm, yeah, true. So, on to the Empire State Building now, where we cut to Dr. Lane and Shuan Khan, where Dr. Lane's telling Khan the blast radius of the atom bomb, and Khan, again, this is another dark moment, where he forces a sailor who made fun of him to jump off the building. Yeah, just just for making fun of him, you know? Yeah, like, and it's like... Oh, he's so all, easily bruised. All the scenes where Khan is making people kill themselves is are really dark. Even for a superhero film like nowadays, that yeah. would be like fucking hell. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of sad because the guy is like screaming. At like one point, he's like, get me down, get me down. But he can't stop himself from jumping off. It's kind of crazy. Like, I was like, oh, wow, this is a real, this is a real moment of like horror for this guy. But his death scene has been treated as a background joke in the next scene because we see yep. him falling and it's in the background of like Lamont and Margot Great. talking about, yeah, 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 sort of talking about, you know, you know, um, where to find Farley's, um, Farley Claymore's beryllium sphere. And because it, yeah, because it turns out that, that he's making the beryllium sphere according to Margot and 
she tells him and Vachalim says he's going to go on and find, uh, no, Lamont says he's going to go find the lab and tells her to find out something about the, um, about the mysterious Penstock wasteland. I thought it was crazy. One thing I thought was crazy was the thump sound of him hitting a, a building and then hitting, falling and hitting another yeah. building whilst we were watching them have a romantic walk yeah. around York. So, like, we could hear what was going on miles away, as well as the traffic and the ambience <laughs> of the scene going on. I thought it's, that was a wild choice. It, it is totally insane. And there's the there's a trope in, I guess, all kinds of movies where somebody has to explain a plan and they have to take them to that space. Right? Yeah. Like, they could tell you the blast radius is probably this and they could show it on a map. No, they have to go up yeah. to the Empire State Building and the Khan has to see it visually yeah. to get it. Like, like it's just a wild thing to, to have this Khan walk around New York City completely in the open. Yeah, yeah, because he's wearing costume, by the way. He's not really in disguise. He's oh. he's looking as inconspicuous, he's looking as conspicuous as possible. Yeah, and we've seen him in a suit, right? Like we yeah. in other scenes we see him dressed in a lovely, yeah. lovely expensive looking suit. And then sometimes he's just like, no, 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 I'm wearing my Khan gear. Um, yeah. I, like like he's he's like, oh, my three-day plan is guaranteed, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So we then cut to Farley Claymore's lab, where um, where Farley enters and hears the Shadow's voice, demanding to know where the sphere is. And Claymore says that it's being loaded onto a truck. And he also reveals that he's willingly working with Shiwan Khan. And... This is a funny moment. He starts firing off bullets with a with a with a machine gun, and the shadow's like, "Ha ha! You won't hit me!" But it turns out that Farley Claymore hits him anyway because he <laughs> sees like the blood trail, and also he knows where the shadow is because he can see his imprint on like the ground. So clearly, the shadow can literally turn himself invisible. It's not I, a clouding men's minds thing. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't believe this scene because as a shadow, you know. You should, as a well-trained person in the in fighting in espionage, why you would hide in a giant metal tube with one exit when yeah. you're wearing no armor? You are where you know you are just relying on this one tool to navigate, and it completely fails for him. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. Because what happens is is that the is that is that Farley claim is is that Farley then ends up sort of flooding flooding the whole flooding flooding the lab, which is like this giant metal sphere, and then and then leaves and then leaves, and the shadow is crippled. He ends up having to dematerialize. He's completely crippled, <laughs> and he's in this and and he's trying to escape from this slowly flooding sphere, and he he actually, I mean, he tries to escape through the door that's locked. And it takes him a very long time to contact Margot psychically, which he does to help free him. It takes him like a good while. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, legitimately, the closest he's come to death is Tim Curry. Yeah. yeah. Which is which is Curry. mental. Yeah. Just firing a few bullets and locking a door. That's really yeah. almost killed our hero. And he and he doesn't even know how to like find any way of breathing because he's he's almost drowning the sphere is filling up with water he's almost drowning it takes him a while to work out he has to go to the bullet holes from the machine gun hitting the wall yeah. and he has to learn how to breathe through that it takes him a while to work figure that out 
over while Margot's driving through traffic, she's not got the magic cab to help her, racing to find the shadow. And it's, I guess it's supposed to be nail biting, but it's like one of the weakest action sequences I've ever seen in a superhero film. Yeah. So it's just Alec Baldwin kind of darting, swimming in circles around the sphere. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this could have been shot really tensely, right? Like, it's a claustrophobic... If, if the film had made you feel like it's claustrophobic, nope, it's a massive tank. It's huge. It couldn't be bigger. He's swimming around. It looks like a pool. You know, it could have been a bit murky water. No, it's completely clear. At no point do we think he's going to die because he's found oxygen. And so when he gets to the door and she's there, you know it's all good. You know, like, at no point does it really, are you ever tense for him? Um, so, yeah, it's a bit of a shame because I think it could have been a lot more tense. Yeah. So the nail-biting conclusion is um, Margot opens the door, both her, and the sh- both her and the shadow get soaked in water, and it turns out that the next day only Lamont's got the sniffles. <laughs> Seriously, like he's one of the weakest superheroes ever. Like he gets cold from being in the water. Wouldn't the, the Tolkien have given him some kind of invulnerability? <laughs> no, no, no. They don't, they don't have a cure for the common cold yet. Oh, I mean, I mean, the Tolkien didn't really teach him much, did did he? Well, not. We don't know, right? We don't know. I mean, maybe he, maybe he really like failed after a few days. Maybe he was a dropout. That's the thing. We well, 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 could be. But we are told earlier on that Shiran Khan was like weaker, a weaker student than Lamont. So, and so you know, it makes you wonder what the Tolku, what, what the, what the fuck the Tolku had going on. Yeah, yeah. Maybe it's just, like maybe they just were trying to like it was the one white guy they had, and they were like, yeah, you know, he's he's doing the best he can, you know. <clears throat> yeah, but anyway, um, Margot's trying to give give um, Lamont some chicken soup or whatever, and she gets sucked into his mind where she discovers his true identity of Yinko. Now, this is a cool sequence because she gets sucked into what is the location from the very first scene of the film of Yinko's lair with sort of like this fireplace from Lamont's home in it, and it's shooting out flames that are circling her, and we see Lamont in his Yinko get up Mm-hmm. And it's and it's a very effective way of showing her using a psychic identity, her psychic powers to find out his identity. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. And, and it's it's so frustrating as well because like these are the moments where Russell Russell Mulcahy is really good, but it's like why isn't the rest of the film this good? Yeah, I think it's hilarious that like she like the the clips we see is like he's he's covered in blood like oh in- yeah because we yeah. see clips of Alec Baldwin riding on a horseback as yeah. a warlord killing people yeah killing people it looks like he's got blood all over his face it's not like on his arm it's oh all no and he wakes up and he's like um now you now you see me she's totally cool she's like oh no I'm good you know you're I'm sure you're different now. Um, um, this is the last time Yinko's identity is brought up, by the way, in, really? in, in, in this version of the film. Really? Last time? That's crazy, considering like that's when she finally realises the extent of him. Yeah, this needs to be a much more like thorough scene. Like, if Even if you look at the scene where, again, going back to Batman, where Kim Basinger finds out Batman's identity, that's a much longer, much more in-depth scene. And 
Bruce Wayne isn't nearly as morally messed up as Lamont Cranston is. This scene needs to be way more in depth. She needs to be like, what the fuck, dude, you know? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. I mean, like, he's also, I guess, century, centuries years old. That never really gets broached. Like, he's he must be, right? Like, he can't he can't be like a 40-year-old guy. Well, no, because all the all the warlord stuff I think took place like 10 years beforehand. Only 10 years before? Yeah. Yeah, only 10 oh, years ago. I really thought he was like no, no, not so at all, because it's like it's seven years between when he meets Patolku and when he reappears in New York. Oh, I thought oh okay, I, I really I really misread that. I was like, oh, this was a century ago and he's this crazy like No, no, but this is this isn't Highlander. Wrong, wrong, wrong Mulcahy film. Yeah, I was I was wrapped in that apparently. So um, it turns out, so now that Khan has his hands in the beryllium sphere, he's made this big-ass atom bomb in his um, in his lair, and his plan is revealed to the whole city. And first of all, one, who is finding out about Shiran Khan's plan? Given that we know that, we find out later on that his lair is secluded. One, who is finding out about this? Because it's on TV, it's on the radio. And number two, are we? We're not showing any sign of the public being panicked at all about this. Yeah, yeah. But New York, but New York's about to get nuked in three days if nobody meets Shaman Khan's demands. Yeah, yeah. Again, it just it just gives a a a, a, a it reinforces that thing about New York being like New York will just tolerate a, a, a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Guys. Yeah, it's like possible atomic destru- destruction. A, forget about it. Forget about it. Come on. Oh, <laughs> God. But it just completely lowers the stakes. Like, if you're a supervillain, your plan has to have some impact on the population. There needs to be at least some shots of people going, oh, no, a bomb. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's no, um, like uh, evacuation, it's just like okay, we'll do a little bit of this, and then we'll just get back to get back to the shadow doing the shadows thing. So Margot then tells Lamont, um, uh, t- tells Lamont about the wasteland. Um, apparently, it was, was the site of a planned hotel, but wasn't finished, but was sold to a mysterious Eastern gentleman. Wonder who that could be. Yeah, yeah, and then, and then. Lo- uh, then now this is where things get crazy. Lamont and Margot go to the wasteland, and we see now the visual effects are great in this scene because we see this hotel, this large, massive storied hotel being revealed to us in front of our eyes. It's from Lamont's perspective. But, and this is a great use of visual effects, but Lamont then reveals that Khan hypnotized everyone but him presumably because he was all the way into bed at the time, into forgetting that the hotel ever existed. <laughs> What's the point? Why, why would that ever factor into your plan? But how did but but how did Khan find the time to do this? Because they're saying that this happened six years ago, that they forgot this happened. Like when did Khan find the time? When did Khan hypnotize people? Everybody in New York is what I want to know. Given that he only turned up three days ago, how how did he mass hypnotize everybody? If you can hypnotize the whole of New York City, you could do a lot more damage with that than building a hotel and then hiding a hotel. 
Um, yeah, but, but then no. why then why bother with the bomb? The bomb, which, <laughs> yeah. by the way, has a two-hour our detonation time, giving yeah. you enough time to defuse it. Why would you bother with this big-ass bomb? Just just control the whole of New York City yeah. if your powers had that kind of radius. Because we're not told otherwise if his powers had that kind of radius. I always thought it was one-on-one. So what was his plan? Just to use the use the hotel as a base? Yeah, as if it wouldn't be discovered. But it's furnished like a hotel. When they go in, it's yeah. beautiful inside. It's clean. I don't know who's cleaning it, by the way. It's completely furnished like a 1930s upmarket hotel. So yeah. well, he must I'm, be completely well, in the red in terms of his finances for putting... Well, 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 I'm guessing the henchmen have got to have something to do because, I mean, because because, <laughs> yeah. because they barely fight in this film. So hey. they've got to have something to do on the days off. If the 10 of them are cleaning this, this huge hotel, credit to them <laughs> because... That's a job for 50 people staff, I'm guessing. Yeah, it like, and this is, I mean, do they know how to use hoovers? Mate, I don't think so. They they were still using crossbows and swords. So <laughs> I'm guessing a, a Dyson was was probably not on their, 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 their list of things that they could use. So moving into the third act into the hotel, um, 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 Doctor Lane is putting the finishing touches to the bomb, and Khan dis- and Khan um, again notes, notes that it has a that it, that it has a two hour sort of delay time, which gives him and Farley enough time to sort of flee the country. And Doctor Lane's locked in a room to suffer because he's no longer needed. But then we get because again the shadow doesn't launch his attack immediately. He's got to wait till nightfall, and. Margot and Mo are given are, are alerted to the fact that they're needed by the shadow by this message exchange guy writing messages on invisible ink um mm. and sort of sending it to their houses, contacting them on their um glowing rings. And when they get the messages, the message sort of magically materializes. You don't need to add anything to it to say, meet me outside the hotel. How is yeah. the shadow able to do this invisible ink shit? And why is this process so fucking convoluted? Yeah, again, again, like his methods of communication completely different every single time. Sometimes he'll use the ring. Sometimes he'll use pneumatic tubing in the city. Sometimes he'll just send a letter that magically appears um, as writing and disappears. It's all over the place. And um the the shadow is really not um not interested in one cohesive system. I know. Oh, especially he's also not interested in being specific about his plans as as Mo and Margot are left out in the rain for like hours at a time, as the shadow's in there dealing with carb. And it's like they even cut away at one point of them still waiting in the rain, going, nice job, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Again, again, a real stab at humor there. Wasn't worth it. So anyway, the shadow um, breaks into breaks into the hotel, and this is weird because Khan sends Claymore and a small group of his men, like four or five men, after the shadow. Claymore then tells the men to go one way; he'll go the other. And the men, once they go one way, they disappear for the rest of the film. The shadow does not confront them at all. Yeah, I was wondering if that was going to be a secondary fight. Nope, they've just gone 
Um, and wandering this giant hotel because, again, the hotel is probably 20 floors and they are checking it floor by floor. Yeah, and, spo- and yeah, spoiler alert, the hotel doesn't blow up in the end. So they're still there at the end of the film. Oh, yeah, yeah. Not, 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 knowing, not knowing how, how lift or elevator systems work, you know, just completely lost. Well, they're, they're, I think they're winning at the end of the day. They're going to open this hotel, you know, the 10 of yeah. them. They're going to be laughing. They've got a great property in the middle of New York City. But there's, but there's, uh, but here's the thing though. There's no fight scene then. You know, again, this could be a good chance to show the foreshadow showing off his hand-to-hand combat skills, yeah. to show Alec Baldwin or his stunt doubles. You know, adeptness at fight choreography doesn't yeah. happen. Yeah. You know, once again, they, we miss out on a fight scene. Instead, Claymore, and it's the same setup as. The, the whole sphere lab thing where he enters the deserted room the shadow laughs as before it's very repetitive a lot of the sequences with the shadow yeah you and, know and instead of just killing um tim curry's character he does this very convoluted thing where tim curry has to like cry and get go demented and shoot everything yeah and bullets he falls instead of just killing him there he convinces him that a window has the word exit on it and it jumps out of the window that's fucking sadistic i'm sorry that you know that's jesus <laughs> that's more sadistic than like even than like the modern day christopher nolan batman films and it just <laughs> this film is a light can't decide whether it wants to be a light, breezy superhero film or this dark Batman clone. So yeah. it ends up being both. And but even for a dark Batman film, that's fucked up. I'm sorry. It's just the shadow basically makes a laughing mad henchman, because that's what Tim Curry basically is in this film, kill himself. Yeah, yeah. Again, it's mad. And it's also quite long, this scene. Like, yeah, it's it's this atmospheric scene of Tim Curry, like he's spinning around in a circle, firing the gun in the air, cackling to himself in this dark room, really humming it up. And, and this happens multiple times where the enemy will go mental, fire their gun randomly, and a couple of times it actually hits um, the shadow, um, but they but he drives them so crazy that they can't think logically, but it doesn't quite add up to what we're seeing. Yeah, this it, but it only really happens just the twice, and this is the only time he really drives them mad. But it's just it belongs. This type of psychological warfare doesn't really belong in the kind of superhero film they're going for, which seems to be lighter. I guess I don't know. Yeah, yeah, agreed. So anyway, after Claymore's sadistic death, um, the Shadow confronts Khan in the bomb room. And Khan pushes a button that makes the floor tilt, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And he then uses Perba. And once again, any scene with Perba is great. It's We see it ducking and diving everywhere. We see it sort of, you know, grabbing onto Cran, to, to, to the shadow and almost slitting his throat. And then we see the shadow kind of take control of, of Perba. We see it's like face turn, which is, which is quite nice. We see some... We see a lot of emotion in Perba's face as we see it switching sides. And he then uses, and he then throws the dagger back into Khan. And it breaks the psychic hold on the doctor, on everybody else, including Margot, and makes the hotel visible. And you'd think that would be enough to kill Khan, but it isn't. Um, because 
he's actually surprisingly vulnerable considering he's invulnerable to the knife going through him because once he escapes into like this hall of mirrors he's he doesn't really put up much of a fight yeah yeah not much at all because apparently so basically Lamont, um, I'm jumping a bit ahead here, but Lamont, but no, not, not, not Lamont, the shadow chases Khan into this hall of mirrors. And initially, this was supposed to show images of his past as Yinko on all the walls, like on all the mirrors. They were supposed to show reflections of his atrocities he committed in Tibet. But when it came to shooting the scene, there was like an earthquake that destroyed the hall of mirrors set. So oh. they had to cut it down. So what we just get is like the end part of the sequence where the shadow goes into this into the hall of mirrors he then we then just cut to him smashing all the mirrors which looks like a pretty cool effect and killing khan instant and uh, not killing khan but immobilizing him instantly with a shard of glass through his temple and it's over with so quickly yeah yeah it's crazy how quickly and i just love the i love a a, a trope of a, a hall of mirrors yeah, where he shoots initially at one mirror, thinking it's Khan, but it's not. I mean, it's done in several movies like Enter the Dragon, etc., but it really works here. Yeah, it's just so funny. Just the logistics of actually having a, a hall of mirrors makes no sense, but it's just such a good dramatic endpoint for an action film. And visually, it looks very similar to Mulcahy's Highlander at the end. And this would be the endpoint, but we've got a bomb to defuse. And we cut to... Dr. Lane, Margot, and and Margot trying to trying to defuse the bomb. Dr. Lane's clueless again, and the bomb accidentally co- go, gets cut loose and it rolls around the hotel like the Bolden Raiders of the Lost Ark. And Margot and Dr. Lane are chasing it all around the hotel. It's going down staircases, going through hallways, and they spend more time on this than the deal on the fight scene between Lamont and Khan, who's meant to be his one of his, his main his main enemy. And yeah. it's such an awful and it's such a slapsticky action scene. Like what was going on? They they played it the, the moment that I was like, this is just too much, was when the ball almost snuck up on them from the top. They were climbing oh, God, ladders yeah. and the ball came down on them. And I was like, how has the ball got the drop on you like you're following it right like it's going down it's not going to defy gravity (laughs) so like how it got above them on a staircase was just beyond me and i was laughing on the floor it's like something from home alone it's like something from a stupid kids film from the era you know they've been missed out on all these fight sequences and action sequences for this you know you really have to wonder the priorities of mulcahy here, like you, you know how to direct action. You've made Highlander films, you know. Come on. Yeah, yeah. I think it's it's um probably speaks to something poor on the production side of things. How how this one went, um. But um, and then and then for the 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 um, the color. Oh yeah, basically yeah, basically they have to cut the wires, uh, the red of the green wires to 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 disarm the bomb. Dr. Lane once again gets red and green confused, so Margot has to do it for him uh, with the bomb having only two seconds before it blows up. Yeah, and he's like, I must remember that in the future. 
which is such a wild thing. Mate, mate, you're a bit late for that, for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah. This is the one situation where that's probably life and death, and uh, you're never going to come across that again. So anyway, um, Shiran Khan wakes up in an insane, in an insane asylum where the, where, the, where the doctor reveals that he's removed not only the glass shard from his head, but he also had to remove a part of his frontal, his frontal lobe, specifically yeah. the part that, contro- that allows him to control minds. Yeah. Shiran Khan is left completely helpless, protesting about his identity alongside other stock comedy loonies who say things like, I am Napoleon, or I am Henry VIII. And it turns out that the doctor is also working for the shadow, which means that the shadow asked him to perform a lobotomy. Again, quite a dark ending, actually, for our villain. Yes, Um, yes, but with all this goofy mental patient stuff. Yeah, and just the way the doctor is, like, quite, like, coy about this, like, very invasive surgery, and then he, like, strokes the red ring at the end to just to signify to the audience that he is one of the shadows. I mean, that could almost be like the end of a horror film. Yeah. Yeah. It could well be. It's like Shutter Island or something. Yeah. Well, given the time period, you know, you're not far off. So anyway, after this Lamont and Margot kiss and he's got to go off on shadow business again. And the film finally ends. (laughs) Yes. So what were your thoughts on the shadow? I, was amazed I never heard of it. I um I thoroughly enjoyed it as just I'm not taking it too seriously. Um there's a lot of stuff of the era. Um, you know, there's problematic stuff in terms of representation and um, you know, white saviordom. Um, but again, you just watch this stuff as of the era and it was a lot of fun in places. And you can and I have to say for 40 million, I think that you can see it on the screen. There's oh yeah. I mean, I mean, the I mean, the map paintings and visual effects are all up there, up there with Batman. I would yeah. argue actually better than Batman. Yeah, me too. And I, I just think tonally, and um, they should have changed. I think they could have made the the Shadow a more interesting character. Ultimately, yeah, they should have gone more into his dark past. I mean, again, it doesn't have to be like the Christopher Nolan films, but. A little more depth, like the Tim Burton films, would have helped gone a long way. Sure. And to cut down on the cheesiness, I think the big problem with this film is it's got a very inconsistent tone. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. I think if you just want some fun and you want to watch something like a bit goofy and thing, you're going to enjoy this because you'll be surprised in moments of where you're like, actually, that looks fantastic. Um, but it's not a, it's not a too difficult to watch. You know, you're not going to be challenged yeah. anyways. I mean, one of the downsides about his fa- about it failing is we never got a sequel with 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 the Mongolians running the hotel. Oh my god! I if I was had unlimited money and resources, that'd be the first thing I'd start to make right here. I, right I, and and it, it can be a spin off series, even it can be a streaming. Oh yeah, I, I think so. I think you know, watching these like five guys really try to like make it in nineteen twenties New York. I've got that just that just speaks to me like straight away. And on that note, that ends our episode of The Shadow. Join us next time when we'll be looking at Schwarzenegger versus Satan in 1999's End of Days. Um, Films that Time Forgot is available on SoundCloud. Um, it's available on SoundCloud, Spotify, Apple uh, Apple Music. 
trying to get all my all my and and uh and no, no, Amazon Music and Apple Podcasts. If you want to get early access, however, you should you can sub, you you can subscribe on Patreon to Forney Film Reviews. You also get access to my written reviews. Um, so until so until next time, keep watching. <laughs>